anger in Syria on Saturday as protesters regroup following a huge crackdown by security forces. This is a city draped in black and a city raging with anger. For the past week, Dara has been burying their dead. Demonstrators killed while clashing with security forces. Dozens are believed to have died. People here say at least 150, far higher than the figure of 37 provided by the state. This woman lost her son. Overwhelmed by grief, she couldn't tell her story. But others told theirs. They claim state security police used excessive force against protesters. Thousands took to the streets to demand those responsible for the killings be brought to justice. to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. Just a tiny bit of housekeeping before we get on with the show. Sorry about the lack of new episodes this month. I've had a series of unforeseen drama and disruption in my life. Things seem to finally be calming down now. Hopefully, new content will come out more consistently, at least for a while. One of the reasons people outside of Syria or sometimes even people residing in the country, get confused about what's happened in Syria since 2011 comes down to mixed messaging. The regime's rhetoric and that of the opposition often sound like two separate realities, not just mere differing points of view. The regime will claim that the opposition are all terrorists and that mysterious snipers have been murdering supporters and opponents of the regime alike all over the country. The opposition will reject this, pointing to the innumerable pictures and videos of the regime being the ones doing the shooting, their targets being unarmed protesters. A Syrian information war has been brewing online and even in real life since early 2011. Today, we're going to show how this information war started in the aftermath of March 25th, when over a hundred people in cities across Syria were murdered by security forces in a single day. Everybody was in shock from what happened the day before. More than a hundred people were dead after security forces fired live ammunition 
at unarmed protesters. And this, in turn, sparked more protests. At this point, in late March 2011, the regime isn't sure how to handle this. There is a deep divide among Bashar al-Assad's inner circle on how to deal with the increasing number of protesters. Meanwhile, you've got 17 different secret police or makabarat agencies basically all doing their own thing, arresting people and torturing them or just shooting them in the street. Eventually, the regime will coalesce around a strategy that revolves around a charade of concessions, releasing certain political prisoners, and then insisting up and down that the protests are the result of a foreign conspiracy meant to divide Syria on sectarian lines and spark a civil war. The first people to ever mention war were people from the regime and their supporters. We'll come back to this later. But for now, let's take a look at the sectarian, i.e. the hatred of people from different religions. So as we've mentioned in previous episodes, because of Syria's history and location just smack dab in the middle between Eurasia and the Middle East, the country's got an incredibly diverse number of different religious groups found throughout the country. In 2011, roughly 70% of the country identified as Sunni Muslims. These are basically the most common group of Muslims found throughout the world. But after that, so about 30% of Syria's population were either Alawite, Christian, Druze, Ismaili, Twelver Shia Muslims, or other religions. Alawites and other religious minorities had been oppressed by the Sunni majority for centuries in Syria. But this changed throughout the 1960s and 70s, culminating in an Alawite named Hafez al-Assad taking over the country in a military coup. His son, Bashar al-Assad, also identifies as an Alawite. A key component of the Assad regime since day one has been the co-opting of religious minorities against the Sunni Syrian majority. It's a form of divide and rule. One quick but very important note. This is not to say that all Sunnis opposed the regime. There were plenty of middle-class to upper-class Sunni Syrians who supported the regime for a multitude of different reasons. But this number had been shrinking for years, thanks to worsening unemployment and economic inequality, which, by the way, got exponentially worse between 2008 and 2010. By 2011, plenty of non-Sunni Syrians had caught on to the fact that the regime was hiding behind the specter of sectarianism to shut down discussions about human rights and political freedom. The regime immediately described the protesters as violent Sunni extremists in order to scare the non-Sunni minority into rallying behind the regime. And the Assad regime was stunned when this failed, at least at first. For more on this, let's turn to a quote from Mustafa, a barber from Salamia, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Quote, I'm from Salamia and a member of the Ismaili sect. Ismailis have been persecuted across history. The regime didn't want to admit they were fighting any sort of secular entity. So when we started having big demonstrations, it drove the regime crazy. Salamia had a big effect on Syria. It raised people's awareness that the government propaganda wasn't true. Dara, a predominantly Sunni city, was protesting. And Banias, a mixed city, was protesting. And now Salamia, a city of minorities known for its leftist tendencies, was protesting. Everybody had the same slogans, the same political principles, the same demands for freedom. It wasn't Salafis or foreign agents challenging the regime. It was a revolution, unquote. Again, that was Mustafa, a barber from Salamia, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in, in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. And just a quick FYI, 
out of the 100-plus people who were killed in Syria on March 25th, 2011, 20 of those people were killed in Salamia. These were protesters shot in the streets. So the fact of the matter is that in early 2011, Sunni Muslims were marching hand-in-hand with an admittedly smaller number of non-Sunni Syrians. Yes, a majority of the Syrians protesting were Sunni, it's true. But the fact that some people who weren't Sunni were starting to join in was a huge milestone. If this was purely a sectarian matter, you wouldn't have seen protests like this in Salamia, or later on in Suida, a majority Druze city. The regime noticed the number of Christians, Ismailis, Alawites, and Druze participating in protests, and this scared the hell out of them. This prompted pro-regime propagandists to increasingly focus on the claim that there was some sort of international conspiracy masterminded by either the United States or Israel or jihadist terrorists all over the world or some kind of combination of the three. And yeah, even back then, they were going on with that baseless conspiracy theory. Again, the purpose was to rally the regime's traditional base of support, the non-Sunni Syrians, back to their side. Videos started to circulate around this time of supposed Salafi sheiks engaging in hate speech against religious minorities. We don't know for certain whether these were real extremist imams or whether they were actually regime agents who were tasked with sowing division within the opposition. We don't know for certain. One could hypothesize that it was perhaps a mix of both to a certain extent. There was certainly an Islamist faction within the Syrian opposition, but they were not the sole face of it, nor did they represent a majority of protesters in 2011. And how exactly were foreign powers reacting to events in Syria in late March 2011? Well, some people might be surprised to learn that Hillary Clinton, of all people, the U.S. Secretary of State closely associated with the 2011 NATO intervention in Libya, she said on March 26th that the United States would not intervene in Syria. She said that the U.S. government, quote, deplored the violence in Syria, unquote. There's a platitude for you. But it was still unclear how the situation there would develop. So there you have it. In March of 2011, the U.S. government and its allies looked at Syria and went, sorry, we have more pressing matters to attend to right now. On the one hand, the situation in Libya at that time was far bloodier and more chaotic than what was happening in Syria at that point. On the other hand, one could argue that Countries such as the United States had more to gain from intervening in Libya than they did with Syria. That topic is uh, worthy of its own episode at some point in the future. You might also be wondering, why was why is it that the Syrian government's response to the protests, why was it so disjointed and all over the place, talking about placating people with reforms at one moment and brutalizing people in the street the next One reason, among others, is that the Assad regime truly didn't see this coming. They didn't bother to prepare for this when protests and revolution engulfed Tunisia and Egypt months earlier. Dr. David Lesh writes in his book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad, quote, It is almost certain that Bashar al-Assad was shocked when the so-called Arab Spring uprising seeped into his country by force, in March 2011. I believe he truly thought he was safe, secure, and popular beyond condemnation. He probably believed so much in his own popularity in Syria that he thought any protests must have been foreign-inspired. But this was not the case in the Middle East of 2011, where the stream of information via social media 
could not be controlled as it had once been. The perfect storm in the Arab world of higher commodity prices, which made basic items more expensive, and a youth bulge that created an irreparable gap between mobilization and assimilation, threw into sharp relief the widespread socioeconomic problems, especially grossly unequal income and income distribution and growing poverty. Corruption and restricted political space marked by macabre-enforced political repression. In these respects, Syria was no different. And after the popular uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt led to the removal of the Anshan regime in each country, the barrier of fear of the repressive apparatus was broken. Unquote. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. This is probably a good point for us to address one of the most controversial and argued about parts of the Assad regime's response to the 2011 protests, releasing prisoners. In the aftermath of March 25, 2011, the regime released hundreds of prisoners, ostensibly to placate the protesters. A majority of these people, however, had a very different political outlook from that of the protesters. These were Islamists. Islamist is a broad term used to describe a variety of different ideologies, a spectrum between you know, guys like the Muslim Brotherhood on one hand versus more extreme groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS on the other. Most Islamists tend to dismiss concepts such as democracy or minority rights. The Islamists were more interested in replacing the current supposedly secular government in Syria with a Sunni illiberal theocracy, as well as in seeking retribution for decades of persecution by the tyrannical Assad regime. Again, this was not what a majority of protesters were calling for. While the activists applauded the release of political prisoners, regardless of their ideology, they still continued to call for the sort of political reforms that both Islamists and Assadists alike viewed with disdain democracy, human rights, political freedom instead of authoritarianism, and the right for minorities to be free from discrimination and persecution. When Islamists talk about freedom, they're specifically referring to the freedom to practice Islam. To a certain extent, it's true that, that conservative Muslims faced harsh discrimination by the, again, supposedly secular Assad regime. There is some truth to the claim that they did not have the freedom to live and practice religion as they wished. But a number of these same Islamists did not support the same type of freedom that people like Mazen Darwish and Razan Zaituna were, were fighting for. This divide would go on to have very tragic consequences for the Syrian opposition further on down the line. With the exception of a few dozen political activists who had been in prison for decades about half of whom were Kurdish. Most prisoners released by the Assad regime came from somewhere on the, the broad spectrum of Islamists. The Syrian opposition has long alleged that the regime released Islamists as a strategic move to divide and subsequently paralyze the opposition. If this is true, this would mean it wasn't an accident that the armed opposition came to be seen as tainted, if not outright dominated, by Islamist extremists. Rather, this was the result of a plan hatched in the early days of the Syrian revolution by the regime to undermine its opponents. Evidence for this comes from the fact that the regime has had a long history of using the specter of Islamism to stifle all forms of dissent and occasions where they even used violent jihadists as a geopolitical tool. 
From the 1970s onward, Hafez al-Assad's regime utilized the Muslim Brotherhood uprising as a cover to crack down on concurrent opposition activities by labor unions and other leftist organizations. In the early 2000s, Bashar al-Assad was afraid that the United States would invade Syria shortly after they deposed Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So he gave the order to facilitate the movement of Syrians and other foreign jihadists to fight the U.S.-led coalition. Now, Assad did not share al-Qaeda's ideology, but he was willing to use them when he believed it was in his best interests to get the Americans bogged down in what seemed like a never-ending insurgency in Iraq. However, this had major consequences for Syria when the jihadists who weren't killed returned home. Rania Abu Zaid writes about this in her book, No Turning Back, quote, Their homecoming coincided with small bombings and shootouts with Syrian security forces, the first incident since the 1980s. Officials blamed it religious extremists and started rounding up suspected Islamist veterans of Iraq. The jihadists, as former Ba'athist Ayman Abdul Nur put it, were supposed to kill Americans, not Syrians. The Salafis were tossed into the three-story Sednayab military prison, some 30 kilometers north of Damascus. Each of its three floors was divided into two wings, right and left, which were further subdivided into three parts. Several hundred Muslim Brotherhood members detained since the 1970s and 80s were on the second floor. The Salafi jihadists lived in isolation in most of the third, an area where the inmates called the Black Door. Their jailers called it the Al-Qaeda wing. The Salafi jihadists were divided into two groups, those who had adhered to the ideology but had committed what amounted to thought crimes, but nothing more, were on the right. Those who had carried arms were on the left. There were at least 400 men in Sednaya's Al-Qaeda wing. At the start of the Syrian uprising, 300 additional prisoners were transferred from Palestine branch to Sednaya to join the 400. The, man, the men behind Sednaya's black door and others who were in or had been in Palestine branch would form the backbone of Salafi Islamist armed groups that would soon participate in a budding insurgency against Bashar al-Assad, unquote. That was an excerpt from No Turning Back by Rania Abuzaid. So in addition to the people whom she described as being persecuted for thought crime, a bunch of people who had been arrested for participating in the Iraqi insurgency or violent actions against the Syrian government were released at various points in 2011. Again, not every Islamist put in jail by the regime was a terrorist. Not everybody who wanted Syria to have an Islamic government was a violent extremist. Just talking about that was enough to get someone put in jail and tortured for years. But the fact remains that the regime has long had an opportunistic relationship with violent extremists. As time goes on, the regime will continue to release far more violent extremists than peaceful dissidents. The Syrian revolution was undoubtedly rooted in indigenous factors, but the violence in late March did catch the attention of influential Islamist clerics around the world. It was around this time that supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood began to start talking about the regime's violent crackdowns and warned that a repeat of, of what happened in Hama in 1982 might be imminent. But these Salafi clerics were commenting on recent events, not directing the protests as the regime often claims, 
The idea of the revolution being a Muslim Brotherhood conspiracy is a myth. Is there anybody out there? Can you hear the sounds? Is there anybody listening to what's going down? Send the SOS out to the crowded faces. Send the SOS out. Since early 2011, the regime has long tried to claim that they did indeed make concessions for the protesters, but those protesters were secretly part of a foreign jihadi plot to destabilize Syria, so there was nothing they could really do. Well, if that's the case, then the Syrian government made the poorest attempt at appeasement in recorded human history. For every prisoner they released, there was about a dozen protesters or activists arrested. There was a joke at the time that old prisoners were being released because they needed room for the new prisoners. The perception among the opposition was not that the regime was attempting to placate them. Their perception was that the regime didn't know what to do, and it was talking out of both sides of its mouth. Talk of concessions here, a mass arrest or massacre there, nobody on the opposition side really knew what to make of the regime's confused reaction. In retrospect, the regime was far more interested in waging a smear campaign against the opposition than they were in calling for peace and dialogue. For more on this, we turn to Ayam, a web developer from Damascus quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Quote, there was a systematic effort to give the movement a bad image. Every time a demonstration passed by a street, the police would run after it and break windows and lights, sometimes spray paint graffiti. On YouTube, you can find a lot of videos of them doing this. At the same time, the regime would show these images of destroyed property on TV and say, this is the freedom they want, the freedom to destroy the country. We always face this question, what is the freedom you're calling for? So we tried to define freedom. We wanted freedom of speech. We wanted the release of political prisoners because we knew that they were potential leaders. We wanted to get rid of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which says that the Ba'ath Party is the ruling party. Because the freedom to form political parties wouldn't mean much if the Ba'ath Party always controlled the presidency and a majority in parliament, unquote. That was Ayam, a web developer from Damascus, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. What this shows is that the media war in Syria began before the shooting war. Arguably, it had a role in contributing to the violence seen later on. Regime propaganda about jihadists from all over the world coming to slaughter Alawites and other religious minorities very likely helped motivate regime soldiers and Shabiha militiamen to follow orders telling them to slaughter their fellow citizens. It's worth keeping in mind, however, that very few protesters were calling for the government to be overthrown in late March 2011. A lot of people still believe that the system could be reformed from within. The people who did wish to see Bashar al-Assad removed from power usually weren't explicitly saying so, fearing that the consequences of calling for regime change would be far more severe than calling for moderate reforms. Ultimately, the regime would make no distinction between the two whatsoever, despite the somewhat conciliatory rhetoric. What exactly were regime officials thinking at this point? Well, 
The Macabrite was made up of about 17 or so different intelligence agencies who spy on each other as well as surveil, interrogate, and torture the Syrian population. And every single one of them appears to have adopted a different strategy in early 2011. Some of them arrested people and let them go after a night of questioning. Some made people disappear for months. Some of them just shot protesters in the streets. And some focused on seizing the initiative in the nascent information war. The conclusion we can draw from this is that mid-level officials were left to fend for themselves. There are few signs of top-down leadership in the regime's actions at this point. That does not absolve Bashar al-Assad. He's still liable for the deaths and torture that have already taken place. But the lack of regime coordination during the first days of the Syrian revolution makes it clear that different agencies were following different agendas. To this day, there's a lot of debate about how Assad himself initially reacted to the protests and their requests. Dr. David Lesh writes about this in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, Bashar al-Assad has acknowledged that one of the primary demands of civil society and democracy activists has long been the elimination of the emergency law and its associated institutions, such as the Supreme State Security Courts. He has admitted that the law has been abused by the government on a number of occasions as a form of repression against political dissent. But he has never backed down from the necessity of having the emergency law, basically stating Syria needed it, given the dangerous context with the Muslim Brotherhood, Israel, instability in Lebanon and Iraq, and external influence by regional and international powers constantly threatening the country. There are some possible reasons why Bashar waited over a week before personally responding to the growing crisis. The Syrian leadership was caught off guard by the rapidly increasing intensity of the protests. They were complacent. The regime was rocked back on its heels by the events in Dara. There were profound differences in the inner circle surrounding the president over how to react. Should the protests be repressed ruthlessly, as had been the Syrian way in the past, or should Assad grasp the moment to make meaningful political reforms? The regime appeared to be talking out of both sides of its mouth, saying one thing while force on the ground did another, giving the impression that no one was really in charge. Unquote. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. It's also worth mentioning that the Ba'ath Party, Syria's ruling political faction, started organizing pro-regime protests in late March. In Damascus and Aleppo, prosperous cities with large pro-regime populations, there were some big demonstrations held in the immediate aftermath of March 25th. The Ba'ath Party was determined to counter the common claim that they had lost all, legit all legitimacy among the people. It would be one thing if the Syrian opposition had been allowed to counter-protest without fear of being arrested or killed, but that was not the case. Given what had been happening to them for the last two weeks, it makes sense why pro-revolution protesters tended to steer clear from the pro-regime demonstrations. You know, that's why you don't you don't see pictures of people holding like the what what's come to be known as the Free Syria flag on, on one side, and the people holding up pictures of Bashar al-Assad on the other side. You don't there we don't have pictures of the two of them like standing side by side in the public square like you'd see in a country that has political freedom. So at this point, there were also a slew of announcements and promising rumors of unpopular officials either resigning or being fired by Assad. This was publicly presented as a major reshuffling of the Syrian government. But everybody with a cursory knowledge of the regime knew that virtually all real power lay in the hands of Bashar al-Assad's inner circle. None of the regime's supposed reforms did anything to mitigate their power or admit any wrongdoing on their part. They ruled the regime with a totalitarian iron fist, 
and wanted to convince people not to believe what they had seen with their own eyes. Again, we do have to keep in mind that a lot of people did look at Bashar al-Assad with enthusiasm when he first came to power, and a good number of them did still feel that way in early 2011, despite a decade of disappointments. I'm not saying a majority of Syrians liked him, I'm just saying that he did have a, a base within the country. This would gradually change as 2011 went on. So for more on this, for more on how people looked at Bashar al-Assad, we're going to turn to Miriam, a student from Aleppo quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Quote, If Bashar had only come out and said, I am with you, my people, I want to help you step by step, I can guarantee you one million percent he would have been the greatest leader in the Arab world. He had that kind of potential. Unquote. That was Miriam, a student from Aleppo, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. What that quote shows is that a lot of people thought Bashar al-Assad would step up and fulfill his promises. A lot of people thought that, all right, the time has come. Bashar the reformer is going to reform stuff. He's going to fix the stuff he said he was going to fix. And... Again, that's what a lot of what most protesters were calling for. They were calling for reforms. They weren't yet the vast majority of protesters at this point were not calling for regime change. A significant percentage of the population was still willing to give Bashar another chance for him to deliver on his promises for reforms and greater freedoms. People who felt this way could still be found on, among both the pro-regime and even the pro-opposition sides. But what took place on March 30th, 2011, changed a lot of people's minds. So, another quick recap. Syria has seen 15 days of protests and increasingly brutal instances of state violence against said protesters. One would probably assume that Assad's speech to address this, his first, his first speech to the, to the nation... Since this unrest began, one would assume that this would be a somber event where a stoic statesman pays his respects to his fellow countrymen who have been injured and killed over the last two weeks. That is not what took place. Instead, Bashar al-Assad showed up to the parliament building like a Hollywood movie star about to walk down the red carpet. He steps out of the car smiling and waving to hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are literally cheering for him. This guy looks like he's celebrating a re-election, not mourning the deaths of dozens of Syrians killed over the last two weeks. I do mean everybody around him is cheering including every single member of parliament present. Assad walks into the building, and the entire Syrian parliament is cheering for him, sh shouting, God, Syria, Bashar, and nothing else. Allah, Syria, Bashar, Wabas. Again, this might be expected at a campaign speech, not at a somber address to the nation after two weeks of unrest and bloodshed. Bashar al-Assad walks up to the podium, and he's the furthest thing from stoic or serious. This dude is smiling and laughing as he addresses the Syrian people over what the hell has been going on since March 15th. For more on this, we turn again to Dr. David Lesh's book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, 
The speech casts a good deal of light on the disposition of Bashar al-Assad and the regime in general, including on the policies they would implement to deal with the uprising. Soon after he began his speech, he made it clear that his primary objective was with regard to the protests, now Lesh quotes of Bashar, quote, My responsibility remains that I should protect the security of this country and ensure its stability. This remains the ever-dominant feeling in my heart and mind, unquote. I'm sorry, I couldn't help but read that in a Bashar voice. <laughs> sorry. All right, going back to the quote, this is David Lesh writing, quote, He was going to keep his end of the great Faustian bargain originally struck by his father, less freedom in return for more stability. He went on to explain why he had waited for well over a week to address the nation. He also fired his opening salvos against the nebulous external forces that, in his view, were behind the unrest. Sometimes that would become a common theme with the regime. And alluded to the new social networking weapons utilized by these forces. After recognizing what had happened elsewhere in the Arab world and its inevitable effects on Syria, he went on to focus on Syria's national unity and unique characteristics, characteristics that gave it a special place in the Arab world, and that, was almost, and that almost destined it to be a target of regional and international conspiracies. Bashar tried to hit on popular traditional themes in Syria regarding the nature of the threat, particularly so-called external forces, harking back to the days of the 1950s and 1960s, when fighting off European and superpower imperialism and interference was practically a full-time occupation. This became the raison d'etre of the Ba'ath Party itself, the womb from which it was born in Syria. It came as no surprise that, once Bashar introduced the idea of a foreign conspiracy, he would continue to harp on it. Following excerpts from the speech are examples of this. Now quoting Bashar, And I am sure that you all know that Syria is facing a great conspiracy, whose tentacles extend to some nearby countries and faraway countries. Lesh describes this as a less than subtle reference to Israel and the United States, going back to Bashar's quote, with some inside the country. This conspiracy depends, in its timing, not in its form, on what is happening in other Arab countries. Some satellite TV stations actually spoke about attacking certain buildings an hour before they were actually attacked. How did they know that? Did they read the future? There is a conspiracy. What we are seeing today is a stage. The last stage for them is for Syria to get weaker and disintegrate because this will remove the last obstacle facing the Israeli plan. Unquote. And David Lesh goes on to write, quote, In a reference to the attempted demonstrations in February that failed to materialize, and in another backhanded swipe at Qatar, the home of the Al Jazeera TV network, Bashar continued, quote, In the beginning, they started with incitement. Many peaks before trouble started in Syria. They used the satellite TV stations and the internet, but did not achieve everything. Then, using sedition, they started to produce fake information, voices, images, etc. They forged everything. Then they started to use the sectarian element. We have not yet discovered the whole structure of the conspiracy. We have discovered part of it, but it is highly organized. Dara is on the front line with the Israeli enemy and is the front line of defense of the hinterland. Only several pages into the speech did Bashar begin to sprinkle references to some, some real socioeconomic problems at the root of the protests. What is interesting is that, in many of these references, he stated that the reforms announced had been decided at the Ba'ath Party Regional Congress meeting in 2005 and he had dwelt more on why there had been a delay in implementing reforms. In addition, he clearly wanted anyone who was listening to know that he was not announcing reforms in response to the protests. Unquote. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. 
Now, one might have expected Assad to focus on healing divisions among the Syrian people, which had been greatly exacerbated by the events of late March 2011. Nope. Instead, Assad regurgitated every single conspiracy theory concocted by state-controlled media and then added some more. He accused the protesters of being traitors, guilty of fitna. That's an Arabic word referring to traitors fomenting civil strife. He even quoted verses from the Quran referring to treason and sedition. Basically, Bashar al-Assad never so much never so much as pretended to give a damn about the protesters, much less have any sympathy for them. He made it clear with his speech on March 30th that there would be no concessions to the protesters, whom he had characterized as either being foreign-controlled jihadist traitors or naive people duped by them. He did moderate his tone somewhat when he talked about Dara. At this point, the regime was still trying to de-escalate tensions in Dara, given the uprising that was currently taking place. Assad admitted that mistakes had been made in Latakia also. He claimed that he had ordered the security forces not to harm protesters, and that his orders had been disobeyed. So he claimed. But overall, he largely focused on the protests as being part of a foreign conspiracy meant to destabilize Syria and pave the way for foreign powers, i.e. Israel, to divide through fitna and conquer the nation. By extension, the protesters were traitors helping this effort, so Bashar claimed. He said that, quote, confronting fitna is a national, moral, and legal duty, unquote. Interesting how he put national in front of moral and legal, and that the people of Dara, quote, Share with us the responsibility of confronting fitna, unquote. There would be no neutral position, no room to compromise, no room to hear the complaints of Syrian dissidents. Now, how did Syrians, especially those supporting the opposition, react to all of this? To answer this, I'd like to turn to Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, where she quotes a doctor from Hama. Quote, I was working at the hospital when Bashar delivered his first speech after the demonstrations. All of the doctors and nurses and other staff gathered to watch it on TV. We were very hopeful, but he showed no understanding at all of the people's demands and the reasons for the protests. He said, quote, if you want war, we are ready for war, unquote. He actually laughed out loud. We couldn't believe what we were hearing. There were even some regime supporters in the room, and they were shocked too. It became painfully clear that this person shouldn't be ruling us, unquote. That was a quote from Jamal, a doctor from Hama, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. People who had been expecting Assad to announce reforms or at least pretend to care that dozens of Syrians had been killed in the last two weeks, immediately made their anger known. Right after his speech, a woman walked up to his car and yelled at him. There's video of the car slowly moving while this huge crowd of people surrounding it make a path for it. And this woman wearing a blue hijab gets in front of the vehicle, leans over the hood to yell through the windshield and wave her fist. Now you're probably wondering, where were Bashar's bodyguards? Well, in the video, there's about a dozen dudes with mustaches surrounding the car who are blindsided by this random woman jumping in front of the car and screaming. There's this look of panic on their faces for one split second before they surround her, grab her, and pull her away from the car. I have no idea who that woman was or what happened to her afterward, but I can't imagine she got let off easily considering how bad the macabre will treat people just for protesting. If you could get tortured to death or shot for protesting in the street, 
What happens when you intercept the president's car and shout at him? And by the way, we know that this happened because Sirius State Media aired it live by accident. Assad's speech with all the pro-Assad pre-gaming and the after-party, it was all televised, but some state media employee failed to cut the live feed of Assad's car being stopped by an angry woman until it was already over. It switches over to footage of a pro-Assad protest chanting pro-regime songs literally one second after she gets pulled away from Assad's car. Again, more mixed messaging. It's turning out to be a recurring theme in this episode. Now, how did protesters across Syria react to Assad's speech? By protesting. Immediately. In Latakia and elsewhere, protesters vented their rage in the streets and police officers opened fire on them. The unrest was a long ways away from being over. Even a good number of Assad's own supporters were disappointed by his speech. They still viewed Assad as a new, young, promising head of state who was more reasonable, more approachable, than his iron-fisted father. That was not the man who addressed the country on Wednesday, March 30th, 2011. This is when some protesters begin talking about demanding Assad resign, or even overthrowing the government altogether. They had expected Assad to at least make a few half-hearted concessions. Nobody expected he would immediately take a hard-line stance, accusing protesters of aiding their country's long list of enemies. Assad made it clear he was not going to back down, and the opposition resolved to do the same. The following Fridays would see protests the likes of which made the ones in March pale in comparison. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our fifth episode, an infamous speech. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod. That's at, capital S, Syria, capital P, pod, all one word, so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can also email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. It's the title of the show, without the question mark, podcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong, or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can also access bonus episodes for just $3 a month, or get bonus episodes and access to our Discord server for just $5 a month. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout-out to our first patron on Patreon, Jaeger DePato. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.